good morning. How's everybody okay? Everybody good? Ask if you will to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 24. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. We'll be going through chapter 19, verse 10. And here we are glad to see each and every one of you here. Welcome to 2024. It's a big year, right? 2024. I'm sure this is the year all of you had marked on your calendars. You were going to make a big difference in the world. And so it's here, and we are excited that you are here with us to be a part of it. I'm excited about what God's doing in the life of our church. I don't know about you, but as the Christmas break and, and New Year's starts coming to an end, I'm kind of, it's not like summer. I'm, I'm like ready to get things going. You know what I'm saying? Let's get things happening. And then I died of the flu. And so I am thankful to be here and be back with you today and excited as we kick off kind of this new year. We, uh, we, we look to this week even as that Wednesday night, everything begins back in full swing, thinking about our mission trips that we're working through this year and how many people are going, our partnerships as they dig deeper as we look in 2024, our equip ministries, our equip institute, all of those things we are excited about to get back into the rhythm and routine of worshiping together, serving together, loving together here for this year. And it's our normal practice to take January, if you will, as we come into the new year and kind of focus on a particular topic to start the year. Last year, uh, we did this with spiritual disciplines or our spiritual habits and what, what those are and, and how we are to, to invest our lives doing the things like prayer, scripture reading, worshiping together. And we, we kind of took a time to emphasize those. However, this year, we're doing something a little different. We're jumping straight back into our series in Acts. We're jumping straight back in, one, because... This spring, we'll conclude that series, and we want to have enough time that we can as we'll look through the end of this book. I didn't write Acts. Uh, I didn't make it this long. You know what I'm saying? But uh, as a minister of God's word, we look to his word, and we want to preach his word. So we'll go through the entirety of the book of Acts, and we'll do that this fall, moving through that time. But at the same time, I think it's a good place for us to start. It's a good place for us to kick off the year and kind of see something that is important for who we are at Taylor's First Baptist. As I said, 2024 marks a very important anniversary for one of the great underdog movies of all time. This is the 40th anniversary of The Karate Kid. <laughs> and I am uh, one who... Much of my teaching style, some of it, has to be given to uh, Mr. Miyagi. He was a pedagogical guru or sensei, if you were. And, and like Mr. Miyagi, there's something I don't want you to miss as we've been going through the book of Acts. There's something I want you to see. Uh, you remember that, that famous part of the Karate Kid, because everybody's seen it. You remember that part where he's teaching him defense techniques, right? How to block. And so he tells him to uh, paint the fence, paint the house, wax the car. Y'all know, wax on, wax off. 
he teaches them all of these things, and Daniel gets very frustrated because at the end of the day, he just thinks it's you know, slave labor. He's just making me work. What's going on? And finally, Mr. Miyagi puts it all together for him, right? And then you have that scene where he tells him to do it, and he's blocking, and he's doing these things, and he's learning even through these other techniques, and he's putting it all together. Here at Taylor's First, our desire is to help you encounter God equip believers, engage the world, and establish the church. Everything we do flows through those things. Everything we, we, we consider as, as our mission as a church flows through those emphases. That's what we've seen in the book of Acts. And so as we walk through this, what I want you to see, maybe, maybe as you step back like, like Daniel had to and see all of those things put together, as we walk through this, this book of Acts, the first book of church history inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Luke, given to us for our instruction and for our encouragement, this book of Acts is, is drawing for us the picture as to what it means to be the church that God has set forth in this world at this time. It's giving us that picture. And God has shown us that what we are to do must be derived from his word. Our mission comes directly out of his word. And so we help to encounter God, as we've seen there in the first part. We, we help to equip believers as, as we see that word of Paul passing through to encourage and strengthen. We help to, to engage the world, as we even saw back in Acts chapter 17, as a good example, and others, of when they engage those issues in the world with the gospel of Christ. We, we establish the church. We establish the church. And I'm not trying to tell you that it all fits really neatly through this and you can work it out. What I am saying is that all of those things are clearly found in God's word. And that's what we're seeking to be, a church devoted, driven, directed by God's word. And so when we say we want to help you encounter God, equip believers, engage the world, establish the church, we believe we are doing exactly what God's word has taught us to do and shown us to do. And the book of Acts is laying that out for us, putting it all together for us. God's word is our guide, our authority in everything. And with that in mind, we look to Acts 18, 24 through 19, 11. This will be a little bit of a refresher maybe or, or a little bit of a, a kickoff. You know, uh, remember the last sermon that was preached from the book of Acts was preached by, by Pastor Nathan and did a fantastic job going through Acts 18, kind of summarizing where we had been. And now as we start off this new semester, we want to look forward as to where we are going. In Acts 18, 24 through 1911, we see kind of this kicking off this last section of how the Lord God has established and is establishing his church. So let's read this passage together. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, 
The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing them, they were, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some came, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity for a new year to, to focus in today on your word and what your word teaches us. So God, I pray that you will use it now, that you will guide us, that you would Mold us and shape us into the people you would have us to be, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe, as I said, our passage gives us a clear and unique look into how the Lord establishes or how he established and continues to establish his church. And how this passage kind of guides my prayers as pastor at Taylor's for our church for this year. And I want to show almost three points of prayer emphasis, if you will, for us as we seek to be God's church in this place, establish and establishing. Three points of prayer emphasis. The first, the church is established by people devoted to the word of God. The church is established by people devoted to the word of God. As Paul is now moving through Galatia. If you go back to verse 23 there, you, you see uh, he got back to Antioch after his second missionary journey. He encourages them there. He spends some time there. He departs in verse 23 and goes back into Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the churches as he had done before. So Paul is kind of doing that. So as Paul is moving throughout Galatia, having reported back to Antioch, we're introduced to a new individual, Apollos. We're introduced here to Apollos, who is in Ephesus. Apollos is, is in Ephesus, but he's not an Ephesian. He's not an Asian, and he's not uh, from Israel itself. He's from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is in Egypt, right? North African. And Alexandria will become one of the great cities of, of ancient times. It, it was a city that, that testified already to the expanse of the gospel. So you have Apollos from Alexandria already having heard the gospel in North Africa. 
And here this Apollos is coming and, and it seems like he was converted. Having heard as a Jew, he's converted having believed in these things. Several interesting facts are given about Apollos. He was an eloquent Man, he was an eloquent man, if you will. It speaks to his abilities, his his competency in speaking, his his ability to proclaim God's word clearly, to to hold a crowd, to to preach in a way or to speak in a way that others would would listen to him. And not only was he eloquent, uh, there was many eloquent men at that time, but this one, Apollos, was competent. In the scriptures, he was gifted and able. He, he was able to proclaim the word eloquently, and he was able to handle the word well. So he's competent in the word of God. He's competent in the scriptures and, and what they mean. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Again, maybe in Alexandria here, uh, which would become an important city for Christianity even in the next century. He, he was fervent in the spirit. Now, this is important. What does it mean when it says he was fervent in the spirit? This, this is uh, maybe an idea from, for example, like Rev, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Do not be flaw, uh, slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. The same, the same phrase. It's the idea here that, that his learnedness, his erudition, if you will, was matched with his enthusiasm. Not only did he know the word well, not only did he understand the scriptures well, not only was he eloquent with them, but he was enthusiastic about them. And, and, and let's just say how good that is. It's not just, uh, y'all know, I mean, my biggest number one thing before I come up here is glorify Jesus and then don't be boring, right? I mean, ultimately, try not to be boring. Don't lose the crowd because these things matter and you preach in such a way as if they do matter. So here is Apollos, who's one who knows the scriptures and knows how important the word of God is. Knows how much they matter. So his fervency is seen even as he preaches with a passion. I believe it means that. I also believe it means something else maybe here. I believe it's speaking not just of his spirit as in enthusiasm. I think it's also doing an argument for his spirit, the Holy Spirit filling him or living and dwelling within him. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because there are some who believe that this only speaks of his enthusiasm, that, that he was not, it doesn't speak of the Holy Spirit indwelling him. There's some who believe this is the Holy Spirit indwelling in him. And this is the point that's making. I'm of the opinion that just says yes. This is, this is both. There's an excitement and the spirit that is dwelling in him. This enthusiasm comes with that. Why do I, why do I believe that? Because it says he, he boldly proclaimed. The boldness that we see in Scripture, especially in Acts, that we've seen over these last, these last several months of, of going through this, the boldness that we see in Acts is a spirit, a Holy Spirit-given boldness. And it's in the same way that he has it here as the apostles have it, as they pray that God would give it to them. So this boldness is a Holy Spirit-given boldness, the same way it referred to the apostles' work. He spoke and he taught accurately the, the things concerning Jesus. Who is our great teacher? Who is the one who points us to Christ? It's the Spirit himself. 
So I believe here is Apollos who is proclaiming God's word accurately with eloquence and spirit-filled power. Spirit-filled power. But then after all of that, after those long positives, there's one deficiency that he has. It tells us he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but he knew only the baptism of John. Now, we remember this. This is John the Baptist, right? He, uh, John the Baptist uh, went out into the wilderness as uh, preparation for the coming of Jesus in his ministry. John was the one preparing the way, and John would baptize. Remember, Jesus went out there, and he was baptized by John. And that, that baptism was a baptism, as John says, of repentance, Right? Uh, Jesus was baptized not because he repented, but as an example for those who would follow in grace. But all the others were coming to John, and it says in the, in the Gospels that they were coming from all over to John. So, so here is Apollos from Alexandria in North Africa who's coming to John, hearing of what's happened to be baptized in the wilderness, the baptism of repentance. And so in other words, saying we're sorry for our sins, but John's baptism of repentance was not the end in of itself. It was just the beginning. It was anticipatory, if you will. John says, I baptize you with water. There's one coming who baptizes you with fire. That is the one who is greater, right? And so John is baptizing, saying there's one who is coming. Prepare your hearts. Repent of your sins. Turn away from it because there's one who's coming who will redeem you from them. There's one who's coming who's greater than. There's one who's coming who will save you. John is pointing to that way. So what happens here is here you have Apollos who is eloquent, competent in the scriptures. Here you have Apollos who's fervent in spirit, yet he has not, had not been taught correctly, guided correctly on this issue of baptism. And like the African-American preacher says, who's going to tell him about it? Who's going to come up and correct him? I mean, he's the eloquent one, right? He's the speaker. He's the one who's, who's in front of everybody. He's the one who seemingly has everything together. He's the one who's holding it all. But who's going to tell him the truth on this issue? Help him with this deficiency. And in the middle of that, in the middle of our passage, we find a couple. A couple faithful church members. We'd, we'd seen them before. They're leaders in the church. They'd worked with Paul. We'd seen them before, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. This wife and husband combination come after hearing Apollos. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. He needed to know a more accurate way. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, took him aside. They didn't do this in front of anyone as to embarrass him. They didn't stand up and charge him or, or make a scene in front of the whole crowd. They take him aside. A godly maturity is seen as they are looking simply to correct a brother. Correction done rightly does not put out the fire of the fervent one in spirit, but it flames it all the more. Correction done rightly does not put out that fire that Apollos had to proclaim it, but it fans it even more. And so what we see here is 
Priscilla and Aquila come. They correct him on what true baptism is and what it means and why this is important. And they, they help him to see. In fact, it doesn't tell us all that they corrected him with. It doesn't tell us how, it doesn't tell us how uh, Apollos even responded to this. But look at what happens. What happens is all positive. After this scene, Apollo says, I want to go and speak to others. And he, he crossed to Achaia. The, the brothers encouraged him. They wrote, the, they gave him a letter. They said, welcome this one. And when he arrived, he helped those who believed. He refuted those who didn't believe. And he showed the script, through the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. It pointed his ministry all the more. Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos to be a better minister of the gospel. To be a better minister of the gospel. Now, this is a beautiful aside, I think. From here on out, by the way, uh, we follow Paul. After this passage, you get to chapter 19, and you can just kind of flip through and look at the headings, and it's, it's Paul in Macedonia. Paul raises Eutychus. Paul speaks to the elders at Ephesus. Paul goes to Jerusalem. Paul arrested at the temple. We follow Paul all the way throughout. So our idea may be here that, that all of this is about Paul, and we'll talk about that again. But what this aside shows us is that while Paul is doing his ministry, God is still at work raising up strong, faithful, Bible-preaching believers to proclaim God's word all over. It's not the only place God is working here in Paul's life. He's working throughout. And there's no fear here. There's no fear for Paul of the ministry of Apollos. In fact, if you read the book of Corinthians, you'll see that there was rivalry there even amongst the Corinthians, but not amongst Paul and Apollos. The excitement for him was that the gospel keeps going forward. That when the gospel is proclaimed, God will raise up new believers. He will raise up from those new believers, new leaders. He will raise up from those new leaders, new ministers and preachers of the gospel. That's how it works. God wasn't just using Paul. Where his gospel is preached, he's raising up leaders everywhere. He's raising up leaders everywhere. He's using Priscilla and Aquila. He's using Apollos. Now to bring this back to us, my prayer. My prayer is that Taylor's First Baptist Church, if we're going to be established as the church, which we clearly are, we're as established as established can get. But if we're going to continue to move outside of ourselves to establish other churches for the sake of the gospel, then we must continue to pray that God would raise up among us ministers of the gospel. Those who feel called to work in the work of the Lord. Those who feel called to work in the ministry of God. This not, should not only just be ours, just simply we say. It should be our active desire to call out those who are to serve the Lord anywhere and everywhere. Whether it's here locally, whether it's in a church in our area, whatever that ministry may be, wherever they are, our active duty is to call people to serve God. And some of you even in this room, may need to recognize that 2024 is the year that you surrender yourself to say, I want to serve the Lord wherever he calls me to go. Apollos very well 
could have been working in business somewhere when God called him out to be an eloquent man. Paul was making tents and seeking after Christians, right? God calls and uses people anywhere and everywhere. I was working at Blockbuster Video, holding and rewinding the Karate Kid, watching it over and over, and God still calls me out of that to proclaim his word. Not only that, think of Priscilla and Aquila. Before you go on and say, well, clearly he's not calling me into full-time ministry. I'm too old or I'm past that or I'm this. Look at the work of Priscilla and Aquila in this passage. They're godly and faithful enough to say, we've got to invest. We've got to invest ourselves. We've got to correct the gospel, fight for the truth, and invest ourselves in this one. Invest ourselves in this so the church can continue. Because here we see through the work of Apollos, through Priscilla and Aquila, reaching into them, the gospel advancing all the more. It takes all of us. The gospel does not go forth without people. And I don't say that to say God needs us because he doesn't. What I'm saying is God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to use us to advance his gospel in this world. And so God, through people like Paul, like Apollos, like Priscilla, like Aquila, like you and like me, God, through people, advances the good news and the gospel. So while God doesn't, need us, but he's chosen to use us. Taylor's First Baptist needs you. We need you to be devoted to the word and the scriptures to say, this is what I want to do. Whatever it is, wherever I have, this is what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of taking the word of God and advancing it, growing in grace in it and advancing it to others. Investing in others. Investing in them with love, investing in them with knowledge, investing, learning, growing together. This church does not move forward without a people devoted to the word and to each other. Growing together and serving together. And that's our desire. That's how he established the church. That's how he continues to establish the church. Through a people devoted to his word. But not only that, the church is established as it depends only on the Holy Spirit. We, we move from that Apollos. Apollos goes to Corinth, and now we sit, get to chapter 19, and Paul comes to Ephesus. Paul is here in Ephesus, and he finds some disciples there. And I put that in air quotes because the, it, it, I think Luke is using that in some way to say there's some disciples. We're all disciples of somebody, right? And so who are you a disciple of? And so here Paul finds some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Here Paul asked them a question. And for Paul, this is a 
pointed question. He's getting to the very issue, the very issue of the heart, right? Because who changes our heart? It's the Holy Spirit of God himself. It's not, it's not intellectual assent to some thing we have learned. It's not just us simply saying, I agree with that. It's, it's more than that. It's the Spirit of God changing our heart from one that is against the Lord, serving our own desires, to one that is loving God and serving him and him alone. And only the Spirit of God can do that. So when Paul sees these disciples, if you will, he asked them this very pointed question. He asked them this very pointed question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, we'll talk about this in a second as well, but this isn't the, the first time this has happened. In fact, it's happened three times before this in Acts. Uh, uh, these people who are devoted here maybe have learned uh, Old Testament. It's almost like the Old Testament believers. You know, Now they're coming into the New Covenant, and what does that mean for them? And so Paul is asking this question to get to all of those things, and their answer is quite astonishing, maybe. They said, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not just deficiency of knowledge, maybe. This isn't, uh, and this is why I said this earlier, contrasting them with Apollos. This isn't like Apollos seeming had the spirit. You know, he had that spirit within him. He was doing it. He just needed to be corrected on what baptism meant and understood that it's not just for repentance. It's being identified with Christ in his burial, death, burial, and resurrection. And so now he's coming up and he's going, now, you don't even, you haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit? And I can almost hear Paul say, well, sit down, let me tell you something. Let's talk about this. Paul sees this as a gospel conversation opportunity. And Paul tells them, who you baptized? John's baptism. John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. John's baptism was anticipatory. Jesus has come. And Paul then lays out the gospel for them. Now understand, baptism is not magical at all. That's not the point of this passage. Baptism cannot save you. It does not, it does not regenerate you. Those waters are not magic in any way. Baptism is not magic, magical, but that does not mean it is not incredibly meaningful. It is meaningful in the sense of a profession of understanding of faith, right? Not just repentance. Repentance is a part of it, but it goes beyond that. It's repentance from your sin and a trusting in faith in the one who has died and forgiven you of your sins. Wash them away. And so baptism becomes a profession of faith. And we talk about this idea of a public profession of faith. And, and that's what baptism really is. For these believers, that's what baptism really is. It's our public profession of faith. We stand there. We ask the question here, you know, why should I baptize you? Or do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Lord? Yes, that's you saying, I believe Jesus is Lord. And because of that confession, I baptize you now in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, buried with Christ, raised with him to new life. It's an identity marker as belonging to God that we follow in obedience. It's the first step of obedience, right, for the believer. And so he's saying here, it's not, it's not going to save you. It's not magical, but you need to know what this is. You need to identify yourself not with repentance of John. You need to identify yourself with salvation from Christ. 
but salvation from Christ. And Paul lays this out to them, and clearly they believe. Now, I want to say here a sad reality that we probably are more aware of than we wish we were is that not every profession of faith is a genuine one. Not every profession of faith is a genuine one. What is important for us, what is important for us is that in our life, when we profess faith, that we understand what we are professing. We are professing that Jesus Christ is everything. He has done it all. We're not trusting in ourselves anymore. We're not trusting in who we are, but it's Christ Jesus. So for Paul, he understood that it's impossible for you to have salvation if you don't know Christ. Not only that, if you don't know the Spirit whose work it is to point you to Jesus, right? The Spirit's the vicar of Christ himself. He points you to Christ. Not only is he the vicar of Christ that points you to him, He's also, as we know, the hound dog of heaven that hunts us down with the gospel of Christ Jesus. That saves us and radically changes our heart and our life. It is the spirit of God that works within us that has the power of God to save us from our sins, applying the work of redemption that Christ has brought. So Paul understood it to say, here's what you need. And it says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus a testimony to their belief. Four occasions occur like this in the book, as I said, of Acts. It's not normative for the church across all ages. It's a description of what happens here as the gospel goes forward for the first time into some of those regions. It's a particular part of the ministry of the apostles. And may I say this again, the apostles no longer are alive walking on this earth today. They were a group of people set apart by the Lord God who established, helped to establish the church. And while they are not walking on this world, their teaching is what we proclaim through the scriptures, having been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so this scene here of Paul laying on hands and the Spirit coming is not normative for us because we know that when we profess faith in Jesus Christ and trust in him, the Spirit does come and indwell within us. Paul here does this, though, to show this movement of God through Christ that the Spirit has come. And when he does, the church at once now is strengthened. These disciples here now become ones who are speaking, as it says, with these gifts of the Spirit so as to proclaim authority to the word that they give. The power comes here through the Spirit, through their teaching, and these gifts that the Spirit give help to show that their word is true. This is God's word, for it comes with power. The Spirit does this. There's no way forward for Paul in the church of Ephesus without the Holy Spirit, indwelling them and empowering them. The Spirit and the word, as we saw, people devoted to the word, a people empowered and indwelled by the spirit. The spirit and the word gives power to our preaching, gives boldness to our witness, gives the words we need even when we don't know what to say as the word. It gives us comfort in the face of great difficulty. The spirit's power is what the church is built with. It's what the church is established with. For it's the spirit of God. 
through the work of Christ and the decree of the Father that changes hearts and changes lives. When we understand Matthew 28, go and make disciples, we understand our role and our job is not to change hearts because we can't. Our role in our job is to proclaim the one who can. And the Spirit works. The Spirit works. We must then, as a church, keep in step with the Spirit, to use Paul's words. As individuals, we must keep in step with the Spirit. We must recognize our dependence upon the spirit that dwells within us. Not only is it the paraclete, the comforter, all of those things, but it's the very one who takes what we do in God's word and applies it in our hearts and shapes us and molds us in our life to look more like Jesus himself. And if you're saying, Josh, what is it then? How do I keep in step with the spirit? Well, let me say it's simply this. Pray. Look to God in prayer. Read the word. Look to his word because the word and the spirit work together at all times. They are never opposed. Pray, read the scriptures, and worship the Lord God with his saints. If you remember, those are our three central spiritual habits. If you want to keep in step with the spirit, well, the spirit's at work through the prayer of his saints, prayers of his saints, through the scriptures itself, and through worship together. Make those a priority in 2024. I'm not telling you what resolution you should make because that was so last week. I'm telling you that as the believer of Christ, your top priority is to pray, read the word, and worship. Your top priority is to pray, read the word, and worship. For every one of you. And the more you as members of Taylor's First Baptist pray, read the word and worship, the stronger we become as the church dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Last one and it'll be quick. The church is established when we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul moves in after this scene back to his basic missiological method again. He entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. And his reasoning and preaching is met with opposition like before. But through the bold proclamation of the word of the Lord and the power of the Spirit, many believed. When the word of God is preached, many come to faith. And the church is built upon this confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, that's what Jesus asked Peter. Who they say? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this profession, my church will be built. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Our confidence as a church is not found in our size. Our confidence as a church is not located in our programs. Our confidence as a church is nowhere in our own wisdom at all. Our confidence as a church is founded and grounded in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. What we are confident of 
is the Lord will establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The power of God is greater than the works of Satan in any way. And although darkness tries to shine brighter than the light, think of that, to put it out, it cannot do it. It cannot do it. And so either we as a church join in with what God is doing or we die. Slowly, maybe. Either we join in as a people to devote ourselves to the word and live according to the spirit and proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior or we should cease to exist because I'm not interested in coddling people in life, easing them on down the road. I'm interested in attacking the very gates of hell which cannot prevail against us. So since we have already won in Christ, we now claim the victory that is ours. And we claim that by boldly proclaiming Jesus everywhere we go. Our confidence is in our Savior and Lord. And it's Him we proclaim from every text, in every life group, in every event, on every street, across our state, throughout our world. It's Christ that we offer and that we proclaim. Look at verse 10, and I close with this. Discontinued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Y'all, Asia is not a small place. He's speaking of that little piece there, that's modern-day Turkey, right? And he's saying, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Why? Because God's people were devoted to his word. God's people were depending upon his spirit. And God's people were boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ everywhere they went. So that all heard. That's what 2024 has in store for us. A people who love the word in each other. A people absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit. A people ready to proclaim the name of Jesus until all have heard. That's what I'm praying for. And my prayer doesn't end without a request from God that he would stir that desire in each and every one of our hearts. What is it God would have you do this year? to advance the gospel boldly? What move do you need to make? For the Lord said, my gospel goes forth, unthwarted and unhindered. And what we have is the great privilege to be a part of it. What is it God would have you do? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. Thank you, God, that you would use us as your people to advance your gospel. And I pray now, Father, that that's exactly what you start now. Even as we sing, reminded that Christ Jesus is everything to us, even as we praise you, Father, may you work in each and every heart in this place to call them to something. Maybe it's like Apollos. It's time for some to say, it's, it's time. I want to I be a minister of the gospel. Train me, teach me, show me. I want to go and proclaim the word. 
Maybe some is like Priscilla and Aquila. I want to I be more faithful to, to know God's word so that I can help instruct others in the knowledge of God's word. Maybe it's some father who are willing to say, I'm not scared. I'm not scared of failure. I'm afraid of success in things that do not matter at all. God, speak and work even now. You're here today and you need to make a commitment and you need the accountability with someone to make it with. We've got people, ministers, pastors standing in the back of the room. They would love to speak with you. You're saying today's the day. I need to do this. He's talking about me when it comes to ministry. We would love to know that. We would love to help you and encourage you. We have so much to offer in these things. May God move in our hearts. Let's stand together and sing.